From the campus of George Washington University, welcome to WRGW's Pin Drop, the show where, each week, we spin the globe, drop a pin on a different country, and take a look at the big issues facing it. I'm Francisco Camacho, and alongside my co-host, Taylor McKinney, we're here to guide you through today's show as we explore the news around the European Union, or EU. Specifically, we'll be discussing the EU's response to Russian aggression, what some say is the final end of Brexit, and long-standing concerns that the EU is not democratic enough. We'll be hearing from Dr. David Finnamore, a European politics professor at Queen's University Belfast, and Dr. Joe Cerrone, a PhD in political science who specializes in the EU. As always, we'll conclude with an amazing panel of students to discuss the news and what our guests had to say. On today's panel, we have Carl Mackinson, Ian Kearns, Nicholas Castillo, and Keral Vidal. Now, over to Taylor. Before we get into the news, it's country profile time. Or maybe international organization profile time? Either way, we don't expect you to know everything about the European Union. We certainly didn't before this week. So here's some fast facts. The area of the EU is 1.634 million square miles. The currency is the euro. Well, for the most part. Poland uses the, zo the <coughs> excuse me, Zwati, Sweden uses the, the Koron, and five other EU states have yet to adopt the euro. That being said, they are all obligated by the conditions of their membership to adopt the euro eventually, with one exception. The EU let Denmark have an opt-out to the eurozone and is allowed to use the Danish krone for as long as they like. The European Union is a descendant of the Cold War era European coal and steel community, founded by Germany, France, Italy, and the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg. The EU, as we know it today, was formally founded November 1, 1993 in Maastricht, Netherlands. The EU currently has 27 member states and is the most recent and the most recent country to join was Croatia in 2013. Their national anthem is Ode to Joy and yes that is the Beethoven song. This is just going to be a bit of a rant about why I say the EU is a very country-like country that is not actually a country. Cross from France to Germany and your passport does not have to be checked or stamped at all. That's because the EU mostly has its own immigration policy. The EU also has its own government and political parties, money, and embassies from other countries. On the surface, it sounds like the EU is very country-like, but let's get to the root of it. The dictionary definition of a country is, quote, a nation with its own government occupying a particular territory, end quote. A nation with its own government occupying a particular territory. The EU occupies a particular territory. In fact, with the exception of Ireland, all EU member states have committed to complete open borders between each other. The EU also has its own government composed of different branches. The Irish Times found that roughly 30% of Irish laws came from the European Union, a figure that is comparable to the influence of federal laws on U.S. states. But the only piece of the definition that the EU does not fit is having a nation, which is generally defined in political science as a group of people who want an independent state. And Europeans just don't believe they should all be part of one unified European state. Europe is not one nation. A 2016 Eurobarometer survey data found that only around 12% of Europeans identified more strongly with Europe than with their respective country. 
there are other reasons the EU is not its own country. For example, it doesn't have a military or a police force. But at the end of the day, despite functioning like a country in almost every practical way, the main reason the EU isn't a country is simply because they don't say they are. With the Russian invasion of invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, the EU, alongside allies with like the United States and the United Kingdom, imposed several economic sanctions against Russia. Indeed, more EU sanctions against Russia were unveiled last week, with the EU adopting a tenth package of additional restrictive measures, including ex an, ex an exports ban on technology and industrial goods. This added to the list of Western technological components used in, military, in Russian military equipment that cannot be sold to Russia. The EU has also imposed restrictions on the import of goods, notably oil and natural gas, that generate significant revenue for Russia's economy. Despite this, Russia has been dodging sanctions to an extent through Central Asian countries like Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. One example is washing machines. Kazakhstan imported four times as many washing machines to the EU in December 2022 than it did in December 2021. Shortly after this, much of the captured Russian equipment in Ukraine was found to be using semiconductors that were originally manufactured for washing machines. Despite this, experts are optimistic that the sanctions are and will likely to, are likely to continue. A report released last week by the CSI, excuse me, the CSIS thinks that tank, excuse me, think tank found that a collective Western sanctions on Russia have a noticeable impact to date. The reports note that airplane production in Russia has likely fallen around 25%. Russia's total import goods with um, potential military application have crashed by 60% in the past year. Indeed, captured equipment in Ukraine indicates Russia is using components in their equipment that date back as far as the 1960s. The report acknowledged sanction dodging, but notes that there is an unreliable means to acquire essential military equipment like what Russia needs. Comparing Russia to the apartheid South, America, or South Africa and contemporary Iran, the report authors argued that the sanctions will prove more devastating with time. They concluded that while sanctions would not likely be the decisive death kneel in Putin's regime, the international sanctions regime will eventually make it much more arduous for Putin to sustain his war in Ukraine. This plea for patience was echoed by Joseph Borrell, the EU's high representative of foreign affairs and security policy in October of last year. Here's Borrell's remarks spoken through an interpreter. I am convinced that the sanctions against the Russian economy work and will work ever better. Today we got the latest report on the effect of those sanctions. Look, I'm not going to draw more analogies because then everything gets misinterpreted. So, uh, I'll hold my piece here, but uh, sanctions don't trigger an impact overnight. They take time, but they start to bite, and they do bite. And with that, we're going to move on to our next big issue, the new Windsor Framework. After the UK left the EU in 2020, the exact status of Northern Ireland has remained arguably the greatest sticking point over the final status of EU-UK relations. In short, this is because of three competing desires. First, the UK has promised its citizens a maximum Brexit. Second, the UK doesn't want a border inside its own country, between Britain and Northern Ireland. And third, all parties want to avoid a land border within Ireland because it would violate the 1993 Good Friday Agreement. The problem is, these three cannot all be achieved simultaneously. The initial EU-UK agreement, known as the Northern Ireland Protocol, left Northern Ireland in the EU single market and imposed a de facto border between Britain and Northern Ireland in the Irish Sea. Opposition to the protocol led the Democratic Unionist Party, or DUP, to withdraw from the Northern Ireland Legislative Assembly in February 2022, resulting in the collapse of the government. To this day, Northern Ireland remains without a government. The DUP primarily cited the de facto border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and the European Court of Justice, or ECJ, their jurisdiction over Northern Ireland. But earlier this week, on February 27th, the EU and UK unveiled the Windsor Framework, which allows Northern Ireland to remain in the EU's single market while rolling back many EU restrictions from the protocol. The Windsor framework has three main components. First, it includes a red and a green lane system that will separate goods traveling from Great Britain to Northern Ireland from those continuing through Northern Ireland and into the EU. 
goods destined for the EU would be in the red lane and still be subject to customs checks in the Irish Sea, whereas goods that will remain in Northern Ireland would be in the green lane and can cross the Irish Sea without any checks. Second, the framework drops the EU's authority to regulate medicine in Northern Ireland and hands responsibility to the UK's regulatory entity. Third, the framework also includes the so-called Stormont Break, Stormont being the name of the Northern Irish Parliament. The Stormont Break will allow 30 of the 90 members of the Legislative Assembly from at least two parties to formally object to new EU laws that would be imposed on Northern Ireland. The EU and UK would then negotiate, and unless both parties agree the law should remain, the law would be vetoed from application in Northern Ireland. However, EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen stressed when unveiling the framework that the ECJ would remain the final say on EU law. Yes, indeed, the European Court of Justice is the sole and ultimate arbiter of EU law, natural because uh, it's prescribed by the EU legal order. So the ECJ will have the final say on EU law and single market issues. The ECJ's jurisdiction, von der Leyen cites, most obviously applies to the roughly 3% of EU laws that will still apply in Northern Ireland under the framework. However, it is unclear how the ECJ might be allowed to intervene if the Stormont Break is used too frequently against EU law or if it is used against a law that is considered crucial to the single market's integrity. In short, theoretically, no goods going from Britain that are destined for Northern Ireland would need to undergo customs checks. However, the ECJ will retain some amount of jurisdiction over uh, uh, of jurisdiction over Northern Ireland, though much less than under the previous Northern Ireland Protocol. All eyes now are on the DUP, which has not yet approved or rejected the Windsor framework and has said it would take time to come to a, quote, collective decision. Our last big issue we'll be looking at today is legitimacy concerns. For years now, many have argued that the EU faces a crisis of legitimacy. This mainly stems from the idea that the EU has a democratic deficit. This, in turn, is mainly due to the EU's procedures for passing legislation. Notably, all legislation must originate from the EU Commission, the executive branch of the European Union, which is not directly elected, but appointed by the European Council and approved by the European Parliament. The Parliament itself, which is the only branch of the EU that is fully democratically elected, is also arguably one of the weakest institutions in the EU and, as mentioned, cannot propose its own legislation but can only vote on bills put forth by the European Commission. These democratic legitimacy concerns are exacerbated by the democratic backsliding that many observers argue is taking place in some member states, mainly Poland and Hungary. While both countries are still generally considered democratic, they have both been butting heads with the EU for over a decade, with the EU raising concerns about the independence of their judicial branches, and Poland and Hungary complaining about EU overreach. In Hungary, Prime Minister Viktor Orban wrote, rewrote his country's constitution in 2012 and changed the retirement age of judges from 70 to 62, forcing about 300 to resign overnight. Orban then chose their replacements and has continued to sharply criticize judges who decide against his position on issues. Poland has spent more than a year occurring 1 million euros each day in fines from a European court order to dissolve a chamber that disciplines judges. Other accusations against Poland, and especially Hungary, include repressive stances towards the LGBTQ community, violating European and international laws on asylum and refugees, and corruption. While these disputes mostly came down to fist shaking, the EU is using a recently passed conditionality mechanism to withhold funding from Hungary and Poland. The conditionality mechanism allows for the EU to impose sanctions on its member states when they breach the rule of law in such a way to, quote, affect or seriously risk affecting the sound financial management of the budget of the European Union, end quote. In total, the EU is withholding $147 billion from both countries as of January 2023. For their part, Poland and Hungary are arguing that the EU is overreaching its authority, and Poland has filled a legal, filed a legal complaint. Still, both countries have signaled a willingness to adapt with lawmakers in both countries either expressing a desire to roll back judicial restrictions or to pass new anti-corruption legislation. 
Many Polish cities have also repeated re uh, repealed resolutions that de that declared them to be quote free of LGBTQ ideology end quote after the EU Commission said it was considering action on the local level too. Still, most observers argue that the EU's financial pressure has had a negligible a negligible effect on the government's policies in the three months its sanctions have been in place. Although there is still much to be determined. We are back, and we're heading over to our first interview. We'll get straight into it. This is my interview conducted two days ago with Professor David Finnamore, a specialist in European politics at Queen's University, Belfast. Hello, I am Francisco A.J. Camacho with WRW's Pindrop. Joining me now is Professor David Finnamore from Queen's University, Belfast. Professor Finnamore, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, delighted to be here. So uh, I should preface, I took Professor Finnamore's class when I studied abroad at Queen's uh, back in 2021. And uh, I, I figured you were really a great guest to have since we're talking about the European Union. Now, usually we talk about a country on our show. Uh, part of the reason I'm doing this is to make the case to myself that the European Union is very, very similar to a country in many ways. Um, but one of the ways I suppose that it's very unlike a country, I would argue, is this the, is the security situation. So uh, as I understand it, there is no central law enforcement, no central military in the EU. To what extent is there a unified security policy in the European Union? I think we need to differentiate between single and common. Okay, the, the EU always has, has long had um, a desire to establish first a common foreign security policy and then a common uh, European security and defence policy. Um, never has it actually said it wanted a single policy. So the idea is that okay, states have their own policies, but they operate within a common framework which the EU, um, member states of the EU define. Um, but on top of that, what we've seen is the EU trying to sort of coordinate as far as possible and, and speak on a number of issues with one voice. And so they've set up a structure over the years whereby they do have a now what we call a high representative for the foreign security policy. And that person tries to sort of speak on behalf of all the EU member states and, and represent their collective position. But that obviously does not stop the individual states um, from from. Um, playing their role on the international scene and trying to address security concerns as they, as they see fit, albeit trying to operate within the context of this sort of common framework which the EU adopts. Has this common framework as well become any stronger or something closer to a single framework in light of this Russian invasion of Ukraine and the general uh, aggressive and more hostile nature of the European relationship with Russia, or have we not seen any major differences or major new proposals? I think, generally speaking, what we, we've seen is a, a fairly collective response on the part of, of the European Union and a desire to um, have that represented in many respects through EU personnel. So we do see Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission President, for example, being quite quite prominent in, in some foreign policy um, activities. Equally, we have the, the, the President of the European Council, Charles Michel, representing his fellow members of the European Council. But at the same time, um, you're not going to have a security uh, situation in Europe without the other member states, um, their leaders playing a role. Hence, we see Olaf Scholz from, from Germany having a high profile for um, uh, Emmanuel Macron from France. OK, so we, essentially what we have is we, we still have states. We still have states right. wanting to play play their role. But equally, I think that they generally over, over time accepted that, okay, well, if you have a collective stance, which everybody agrees and, and buys into, that's going to have greater resonance on the international stage. Um, challenge for the UK has always been, okay, well, how do you get 27 states to agree on that position? Um, right. And hence, there are times people might say, okay, well, is this really the EU line that a member state might be um, following? Well, broadly, yes, but they'll have their own nuances to it. If there's one thing I've learned about the EU from your class and others, it's that it's defined by asterisks. Nothing is ever fully unified and simple. It seems like there is always an exception. Talking about the most prominent exception right now, I think, uh, let, let's turn towards this winter framework and the status of Northern Ireland. Um, this is all a part of this broader Brexit issue. So I want to start with this question. Uh, is Brexit finally done with the Windsor Agreement? Assume, assuming it passes, assuming it does pass through the DUP, the UK, the EU, is that really the last major issue facing Brexit, at least at the moment? 
Okay, you might say this is a typical academic response, but it, it depends what you mean by Brexit. Okay, if Brexit is the United Kingdom leaving the European Union, ceasing to be a member, it's done, and it has been done for quite some time. But if if Brexit is about removing all traces of EU membership and the, 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 the legacies of European integration, well, it's not done. And it probably never will be done because um, the UK is in a relationship with the EU. Part of its territory, the United, Northern Ireland, is in a particular relationship with it. And indeed, the UK now seems to be wanting to sort of have a slightly closer relationship with the EU. Now, for as long as there's a, a close relationship with, with the EU, and it may be getting closer, there will be people in British politics who say, well, Brexit has not been delivered. Um, mm. So it comes back to what, what do you actually mean by Brexit? Um, um, theoretically, I think the promise is that any goods destined for the EU and only the goods destined for the EU from the UK will go through these customs checks um, in the Irish Sea. And that nothing that is only bound for Northern Ireland will go through those checks. Do you see in the Windsor framework, from your understanding, any of those asterisks we alluded to earlier, like any things that are going to be an exception to this rule, goods that might be destined for Northern Ireland, but are still going to go through those customs? Okay, I think with so much to do with the the protocol, the Windsor framework, there's always going to be asterisks, and it and it's never simple. It's never black and white, um, and hence people are actually saying, well, how green is the green lane? Um, Okay. Equally, I think, yes, the, the, the principle, if the good is going to remain in Northern Ireland and is meeting the, requ the requirements to, to demonstrate that, that it will, then it will go through the green lane. Okay. But equally, and equally, yes, if goods, we are, they are known to be going on into the, the uh, single market, they will have to go through the red. But there is this issue about well, what happens if, if you're importing something which you may then process, which goes on into the Irish in, in, uh, into the single market. Right. And I think what we have seen is a number of producers actually saying, well, actually, for our business model, it's easy to just put everything through the red lane because then mm -hmm. we know that it, we can use that product and sell it both within the Northern Ireland market and also within the single market. And if mm. we're processing, yes, we may be processing predominantly for the Northern Ireland market, but actually we'll be wanting to sell on into the Irish market and the, the EU market. So you may have some producers going through the red lane so that they can actually demonstrate that the product that, that, that they have or the products they may be producing can access both markets. If they go through the green lane, they can only sell that good in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. And that may not make business sense to them. But I think what we're going to see in terms of retail in particular is the supermarkets being broadly content that they can now move their goods into Northern Ireland through a green lane and don't have to go through all the processes that would be required if they were to go through the red lane. I do like certainty. It will, it will be very interesting to see if that does, does play out in that way. Um, I, I want to move to this other major part of the Windsor framework or what I see as the other major part, which is the question of the European Court of Justice in this storm and break as well. Um, this gets it a bit into Northern Irish politics, but 30, I think it's 30 ME, uh, MLAs, members of the Legislative Assembly of Northern Ireland, will be needed to petition to say, hold on, we don't want this new EU law that has passed to apply to us, at which point the UK and the EU will hack it out. And unless they agree, it does indeed get kicked out. And, and in, in, a, in the situation that the break is used, I mean, I guess what I want to get to could the European Court of Justice at any point in in this in this system intervene? Or I, I mean, it's in that they will still be the arbiter over EU law. That is made explicitly clear. To what extent is is this system, is the use of the storm and break going to count under that? To what degree will the uh, ECJ still have jurisdiction over Northern Ireland? My understanding is that if you if the um, uh, you get the storm of break being being used and the UK and the EU agree that it, sh it shouldn't be um, applied, then the court does not have jurisdiction over that. Okay, um, that uh, the the law simply would not apply. The issue to, to re remember though is that where law does not apply, the European Commission can take remedial measures, mm -hmm. and that's one of the big unknowns. We do not know how the EU might react. Because obviously the fundamental position of the EU is that it wants to protect the integrity of its in internal market. Now, if it believes as a consequence of Northern Ireland not applying a piece of EU legislation, the integrity of the internal market may be compromised, 
it raises the question of what sort of measures might the European Commission propose or indeed take. And that's not think, entirely clear at this point, no, is that correct? that's not, not at all clear. And, and this is, okay, I think we're a long way from being in that, finding ourselves in that situation. But ultimately, um, the, 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 the arrangements do not, or the process does not stop if the piece of legislation is applied, because mm -hmm. the EU can take remedial measures, and we just don't know what those would, would, would be. It'd be interesting to see where we are in X number of years' time when this might be the situation. I, I want to end on just a purely lighthearted question. Uh, I spoke with Martha Finnamore, who is an international organizations expert here at George Washington University. Um, All right, we'll hello, folks. We're going, we to, we're going to cut that interview just a little bit short to save time for the panel today. And we're going to head on to the second interview. This was conducted with Dr. Joe Cerrone, a political science doctor at the George Washington University. And here is that interview that I conducted with him again two days ago, shortly after the interview with Professor Finnamore. Hello, I am Francisco Camacho with WRGW's Pindrop, speaking now with Dr. Joe Cerrone. He is an expert in European politics and came on very high recommendation from GW's own Martha Finnamore, another expert in international organization. Dr. Cerrone, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. All right, uh, let's get straight into it with some of the most recent news, this Windsor framework. Now, we've talked a good deal about this with our, our other guests, uh, Dr. Dr. David Finnamore, but as we examine this, I want to just ask, is this a loss for the EU? Because it does feel like it is giving the UK and Northern Ireland um, much greater leverage over the extent to which Northern Ireland is in the single market than before, especially with this storm and break, that theoretically it would only take 30 members of the Northern Irish Legislative Assembly to veto uh, an EU law assuming the UK agrees with. Is this a loss on the EU in terms of setting a very hard term for Brexit? You know, I think it's too early to say it's a loss, but it's definitely a large compromise. And as you mentioned, there's several areas, particularly regarding EU regulations that previously would have been adopted and followed in Northern Ireland that are very likely to be rolled back. That's also true in terms of some areas of taxation. The one thing that you mentioned regarding the Stormont break, which is allows the Northern Ireland Assembly to, as you said, essentially veto or put a permanent stop on new EU regulations applying in the area. This is really seen by the EU, at least, as a, a measure of last resort. It's not meant to be used as the first uh, response from by the Northern Ireland, Ireland Assembly. And it's also not meant for what they term trivial matters in the agreement. Now, who decides what is a trivial or a non-trivial matter? Of course, I'm sure we'll see lots of that over the next few years. But the EU did reserve the right to um, you know, essentially punish Northern Ireland if they felt that they were using this in a, a trivial manner. Um, so it's not meant to be used every time a new EU regulation goes into place. So this Windsor framework will need to receive approval from the uh, UK government from Westminster. By contrast, by, by proxy, it'll have to receive some amount of approval from Northern Ireland, at least from unionist parties there. Um, but on the European side, the commission has, has gone through with this uh, has agreed to this. What is going? What is going to be done mechanically for this to get passed on the EU side? And is there any risk that the EU will not consent to this? Union? Sure. So on the EU side, we're going to see this brought before the European Council, which is made up of the heads of state and government of the member states. So you know, France and Emmanuel Macron, um, etc. Um, and they'll vote using probably a qualified majority voting method. <clears throat> I think right now it seems likely that would be approved, although, of course, we're still in the first week. It's, I think, been about four days since it's been announced. So there's always time uh, for some uh, challenges to arise. It's also possible that parts of this may need to go before the European Parliament for a vote. I don't think it's quite clear yet whether that's the case. And I want to shift now from this Northern Ireland subject to a question that arises from it a little bit in terms of the democratic deficit thing. A lot of Northern Irish people are upset that they're going to be subject to any European laws, given that they don't have any voice in the EU Parliament. But then, of course, uh, the European Parliament, which is the most democratic body in the EU, can't even propose legislation. Uh, to what extent have we seen this be a practical problem in terms of legitimacy concerns to the EU? To the EU? Theoretically, of course, it's a great concern, but in practice, is it really a problem? 
You know, I think there are, there are mounting arguments that it is a problem in practice, largely because of the disaffection you see amongst many EU citizens or the estrangement that you might find in public opinion polling or other forms of political activity in terms of people not necessarily seeing themselves reflected in the European institutions or um, seeing uh, them being accountable to or responsive to the citizenry. I mean, you made a really great point there about the European Parliament, which in technical terms, doesn't really act like a parliament. It, as you said, it cannot um, propose legislation. It cannot write its own laws. It can only respond to things that are sent to it from the European Commission. Um, there have been over the last really several years, but and even going back further to the early 2000s, various efforts to make the EU more accountable. For example, there have been proposals to directly elect the Commission president, who is currently um, appointed by the council and then approved by the parliament. Uh, there have been ideas of running primary elections for candidates or cross-national lists for European Parliament elections. There are many proposals out there, none of which have um, really seemed to pick up steam lately. But I do see this as a long-term problem, particularly as you see uh, countries within the EU starting to grapple with each other um, in terms of their own domestic politics. Um, you know, To what extent do the French and the Hungarians really see each other as part of the same project anymore in terms of democracy and, and uh, human rights and rule of law. Um, that could be a problem down the road. I do want to talk about Poland and Hungary specifically in a second, but mm -hmm. uh, my personal thesis about the European Union is that it is the most country-like country that is not a country. Um, and I suppose one of the big reasons I would say that despite functioning in many ways like a country it is not, because it doesn't seem like people in the EU want it to be a country. There's no one really moving for it to be declared one. How have we seen, um, sort of a bit of a history lesson here, but how have we seen that shift? Because I do remember in, in the inceptional phases, there were people like Winston Churchill who even floated the idea that the, that Europe would become one country down the line. Does it seem like there's any momentum going in one direction or the other towards closer to like a single state or much more towards this, what we see now, this international organization? Yeah, definitely. You're entirely right. Um, scholars have grappled with this for decades and often called the EU a um, sui generis organization, meaning one of a kind. It's not like anything else. It's much more than an international organization but as you mentioned, it's not quite a country or a state in its own right. You know, when the EU was first conceived, it began as a coal and steel community. So it was just about really regulating and trading coal and steel between six core members, um, France and Germany being the largest of them. And it gradually developed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s to encompass more um, areas uh, of authority and competence, but they were all economic in nature. And we really saw a switch in the 80s and then really in the early 1990s where the EU shifts from being mainly an economic community, community to one that adopts political and social goals as well. And actually one of the, um, what I consider most important phrases in the founding treaties of the EU is that it seeks to adopt an ever closer union, those three words, ever closer union. And we saw that increasing in the 90s and 2000s, but certainly over the last 10, maybe 15 years, especially since the financial crisis of 2007, we've seen a break on that, and then maybe even a little bit of a rollback, particularly in regarding Brexit, of course. Uh, um, so the question of regarding, you know, where is the EU headed? Um, that's always uh, a question the Europeans ask themselves. But I could imagine down the line there being more integration, um, but the appetite doesn't seem to be right uh, there right now. Going again towards current events, and yet also something that's been a problem for some years now, I want to talk about Poland and Hungary specifically. These are both countries that are generally perceived to have, in relative terms, autocratized a little bit more, had some amount of democratic backsliding, the extent to which it's debatable. Um, but the EU is founded on the premise that all of its members will be democratic. Of course, as we see this backsliding, there is some desire to punish, but there's also a lot of restrictions because a lot of these decisions have to be made on consensus uh, or something close to it. I understand that the EU has, however, tried to make some measures to get around and put some pressure on Viktor Orban in Hungary, uh, for example. What, how, what are the ways that the EU is trying to get around its limits based on consensus decisions to put pressure on Hungary and Poland to become more democratic and not interfere with the judiciary as much, right? 
Yeah, exactly. I think there are two that stick out to me. One is a much more formal measure and one is much more informal. The formal measure is thinking about budgeting. The EU has a multi-annual financial framework, so a budget that lasts you know, several years. And there have been discussions and attempts to restrict funding for EU, um, particularly for Hungary, but also for Poland, um, based on rule of law violations, right? They're not following rule of law, particularly, as you just mentioned, um, issues with the judiciary, packing courts, etc. And this is important because the EU does um, dispense with, with a large amount of funds uh, for these countries. They build infrastructure, they um, improve health services, um, all sorts of things. So that's been one measure. But you know, the, how successful that has been is, is in question. It obviously it hasn't slowed down Orban. Uh, it doesn't seem yet. The other measure is more informal outside the institutions. Um, and particularly what comes to mind is the political party structure in the European Union. Um, Orban's party, uh, Fidesz, used to be a part of what is called the European People's Party, which is the mainstream center-right Christian Democratic Party in the EU. Um, they were essentially forced out of the EPP about a year, a year and a half ago. And that comes with costs. So for example, in the European Parliament, access to the party's budget and funding has been reduced. Um, if you're a part of the party, you, you will have chairmanships of various committees. You'll have guaranteed speaking time during parliamentary debates. Um, but now that all of um, Orban's party members are sitting as essentially as independents in the parliament, they lose a lot of that um, both formal but also informal uh, power. And I think that could down the line also have an effect. Uh, but, but as we've seen, you know, it doesn't seem like it, they're stopping stopping anytime soon. But there are various measures um, that have been tried, at least. Dr. Joe Cerrone is a PhD in political science who specializes in, among other areas, the European Union. Dr. Cerrone, thank you so much for joining Pindrop today. Thanks for having me. It was great talking to you. All right, folks, that was my interview with Dr. Joe Cerrone. We are going to go now. We're going to be skipping our break because we have an amazing panel that we just cannot wait to get to. We have Ian Kearns, the news department director here at WRGW. He uh, is also lived in Luxembourg for a very good chunk of time. We have Nicholas Castillo, one of our recurring panelists. We have Carl Mackinson, who in addition to being a member of the Pindrop crew, is a German citizen himself. And lastly, we have Keral Vidal. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. I'm getting a thumbs up, so that's pretty good. Um, welcome, all of you, so much. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Uh, Keral, as well, it should be noted, is from Barcelona, which I'm trying to pronounce with my accent, despite personally I'm being, my being averse to it. I speak with a Chilean <laughs> accent in Spanish. But anyway, uh, we'll get into things. I want to start with the more specific things and broaden our scope a little bit. So first of all, on this Windsor framework, Nick, I want to start with you because you and I were both in Northern Ireland together. Um, you know uh, Northern Irish politics about as well as any student who's an American could know them. Do you see this storm and break having any potential for abuse? It only takes 30 MLAs from two different parties to be able to do an, an, an initial veto of an EU law. Do you see this as being abused, or do you think it will be respected as the way it's intended to be as a measure of last resort? I actually think there is a significant chance of abuse. Northern Ireland politics are like notoriously chaotic with factionalism, with very strong heated opinions. You have major parties that quite frequently threaten to exit government, causing all sorts of chaos. Twice in the history of the Northern of the post-peace uh, treaty, Northern Ireland Assembly, the government has collapsed due to various issues. Um, so I think there is a significant risk of abuse. Um, that being said, I think in accordance with minor things, really small um, regulation, probably not too much, but anything that could be ideologically sensitive, um, anything that would maybe threaten in the minds of unionists in particular, the role of Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom, I think there'd be a large risk of um, political chaos. In speaking of political chaos, but going over to the UK side of things, I want to play this clip uh, from Boris Johnson um, when this Windsor framework was announced. Can we get that played right now? To vote for something myself, because there's something like this myself, because I believed that we should have done something different. In the meantime, I will continue to campaign for, for what I thought of and what I think of as Brexit and the logic of Brexit. Because this is nothing if it is not a Brexit government. And Brexit is nothing if we in this country don't do things differently. So you hear BJ saying right there, 
Sorry, BJ, that's very unprofessional of me. You hear Boris Johnson saying right there that he's very much against it. He was pushing for a harder deal, a more maximum Brexit. Uh, Ian, I want to start with you first. Uh, do you think Boris Johnson, at the end of the day, has the support? Do you think that this is going to pass Westminster easily? Do you see there being a realistic challenge to this Windsor framework? Um, my personal thought on this is when it comes to Boris Johnson, there's a significant degree of unknown. Boris Johnson left, unfortunately, in a flurry of political scandal, and so when it comes to predicting his influence within the Tory party, if not British government overall, there is considerable kind of uncertainty as to whether people would be swayed by his idea. Do they follow Rish the Rishi kind of party line, or do they move more towards kind of Johnson's existing ideas towards Brexit? But at the same time as well, we have the Labour Party uh, putting a spanner potentially in the works in that regard when it comes to Boris Johnson. Do they uh, all, is it two sides of the same coin when it comes to Boris Johnson in terms of restraint from, or refraining from the Rishi policy line? Or when it comes to this, do they just outright oppose everything completely and potentially gain some uh, popular ideas or a kind of popularity within Brexit skeptical areas, if that makes any sense? Kirill, do you have any ideas on this around the Windsor framework in, in, in general? Uh, or Carl, for that matter, I just want to give anyone else the chance to jump in. All right. We'll move now on to the issue uh, of, of Russia, which, of course, as of the past year, has been particularly harsh. I do want to start with you with this, with this question with you, Kirill. Um, we're seeing these sanctions being imposed by the European Union. We're also seeing some amount of sanction dodging, as we talked about earlier in the show. Um, we heard from the CSIS report. Do you see these sanctions as ultimately being effective enough? To what degree will they work in hurting Putin's ability to wage war? To what degree will they be effective? Okay, so I think that here there are two different questions. First of all, if Putin is uh, still credible and has, still has public support, which I don't think has a huge relationship to um, the effectiveness of the sanctions. And when it comes to the sanctions, I don't think that they have been effective at all. If you see the GDP of Russia before and after the war, their GDP has decreased by less than 1.5%. Uh, Whereas in Europe, we can see Germany in a huge recession. And I actually believe that, there is, that the, the sanctions have harmed the EU economy more than the Russian one, right? Um, when it comes to, and this is actually, uh, this gives food for thought for European policymakers and even the US policymakers in terms of how to stop Russia from, from invading or escalating or, I mean, not even escalating, but continuing with the war. However, when it comes to the public support Putin, Putin is receiving by the Russians, to be honest, I don't think that Russian information is reliable. So I don't really believe in the uh, figures that they've given. I would, I would tend to believe that Russian people is increasingly um, unhappy and, and unsatisfied with Putin. But at the same time, it is their propaganda is so strong, is so strong, that we can have Russian mothers believing that their sons are dying because uh, there's this Nazi country that needs to be, that needs to happen, that needs to go through a denazification process. And that's what their sons are giving their lives to. So, so yeah, if that makes any sense, that, that would be my, my answer, my thoughts. No, it does make sense. Carl, any thoughts on this? Yeah, just briefly. Um, I do think the sanctions have some capacity to make change. Um, I think you see that with the, the realignment of China and Russia getting increasingly close together. I think the sanctions are pushing that. I agree. And that concerns me. Um, I... <laughs> I agree that the sanctions may not be economically viable for Europe or the U.S. Um, really long term, but it take, first of all, it takes a while for sanctions to really t to take effect. Um, I think already just with the specific case of, say, Germany and Gazprom in Russia and, and the um, exporting of natural gas to Germany, how quickly Germany was able to modify their, their infrastructure and accept liquefied natural gas from around the world. Um, I mean, Russia is at its base a petrostate, and a lot of its income comes from that. Um, so I would say give the give the sanctions a little bit more time, and then there's there's you could sort of see them working by the fact that the Russia is is drifting um, closer and closer in its ties to communist China, which again concerns me. <laughs> um, so that's all I'd say about that. 
uh, Nick, uh, let, let's rope in Hungary into this. Um, because they've rhetorically been a bit obstructionist towards a lot of these these policies, a lot of these sanctions against Russia. Do you see there being any dynamic in the EU efforts to sanction Russia and hurt their war effort with the ongoing, um, shall we call it a spat, between uh, Orban's Hungary and the rest of the European Union? Sure. I don't necessarily think it's impacting the ability of EU states to sanction Russia economically, um, but I think in practical terms, Hungary's refusal to align itself with the broader European strategy has tangible um, effects. Um, late last year, Hungary vetoed a, a massive aid package of military spending to Ukraine, something around $20 billion, I think. Um, now, the extent to which Hungary is doing that out of ideological reasons, I'm actually quite skeptical of. I think it was more to do with the fact that the EU had been pursuing a course of denying Hungary billions in EU funds themselves due to issues relating to corruption and, and rule of law and the broader um, a liberal shift in, in Budapest. Um, but I do think Hungary acting as a spoiler state from inside the house, so to speak, is a real problem, um, not in terms of sanctions, but, but certainly in terms of these broader um, EU procedures which are really based on uh, total consent throughout all EU member states. And, I mean, I guess my the follow-up to this is, it is Hungary's obstruction, not only in, in this capacity, but, but in others, is this a potentially lethal threat to the European Union, or is it something that the EU is handling very robustly? Um, uh, I don't know who wants to take that first, but I'll, I'll throw that out there. Is this a is this a crisis Brexit level concern, or is the EU's efforts to engage Hungary all they need to do at the moment? I can take that one for a second. Uh, just coming from a little bit of experience with the European Parliament, I think the idea of engaging Hungary has, uh, I don't know, I mean, there are portions of it where it, it does lead to kind of a crisis level where it's Orban being kind of, as you said, a spoiler state, but at the same time, the EU does that corruption and rule of law idea of, like, withholding funds and that sort of thing does tend to have considerable uh, backlash or it, uh, it's considerable backfiring. I turn to the Balkans in that respect because Bosnia and Herzegovina has tried very hard to be an EU member state. However, there's been consistent failing of guidelines set by the EU and unfortunately has come to the detriment of Bosnia and Herzegovina. So if you turn that to Hungary, there could be greater integration within, or at least there could be greater engagement and that could help amelioration of ties. But at the same time, I sometimes remain skeptical, uh, skeptical on that respect. I'd also just like to comment on this, that I really think the issue of whether or not to these renegade states in, in Poland and Hungary would be lethal to the EU, I think that's a question of, of time will tell. Um, Poland and Hungary have both been um, becoming increasingly authoritarian states from upwards of, of five years now, and it hasn't proved lethal to the EU as a broad organization. Um, so I don't think it's lethal in that regard. Um, in terms of their ability to mess with the basic functionings of the EU, I think the, the example I pointed to earlier works. I also want to bring in the dynamic of the war in Ukraine and how it's shifted EU politics internally, um, because you really see a split between Hungary and Poland on that issue. Previously, Hungary and Poland had been seen as very much aligned in terms of protecting one another from, from EU efforts. Um, but now you have the issue where Poland is really one of the heavy hitters of Western and European policy, um, and that's not the same as Hungary. Uh, we're sadly running short on time. Building into this question of broader legitimacy problems, I want to broaden our scope a little bit now. I want to start with a very specific example. Um, Gerald, I, I think sometimes about this legitimacy concern about the Catalonian crisis that particularly came to a head many years ago, but um, still exists to a good extent, where the EU has broadly backed Spain, even though it's hard to say exactly, but there's good evidence that most people in Catalonia want independence in the long run. I mean, both specifically and broadly, do you see these concerns about a crisis of legitimacy, a democratic deficit in the EU, as being a real problem or more a theoretical issue that doesn't manifest day to day? To be honest, even if I personally believe that this is a huge problem, in terms of the general population, I think that this is a theoretical debate. Because uh, I think that we've all been born and raised uh, within this EU mindset and with all things we all believe, and I actually think that's true, that we need the European Union. The fact that it's a less democratic institution, that direct democracy that we have in our own countries, is not having uh, 
tacit, like um, uh, practical results in our daily lives. However, all the benefits that we get from the EU, single market, moving oh, like abroad without passport, visiting, working, whatever, these are the things that actually matter to the Europeans. And there's no actual debate on whether, yeah, why do we only vote for the parliament and we don't vote for the commission, right? Um, and just very briefly, in, in terms of the Catalonian problem, um, even though, of course, the EU is going to back Spain, because we've got secessionist movements all over Europe. We've got Brittany, we've got Scotland, we've got... Uh, the main difference is that the way Spain has handled it, I think that has uh, made Catalans even more angry. And actually right now, Catalans rely on European legitimacy to be like, yay, uh, Spain has been behaving, like, has been misbehaving um, in the way they've treated Catalan politicians. So they're trying to gain Europe support in terms of punishing or at least criticizing all this political slash judiciary process the Catalan politicians have received. Sadly, folks, we're out of time there. I want to finish off with one final question to each of you all. Um, answer just one way or another. Sadly, we don't have time for explanations. The thesis I put forward throughout this whole show is that the EU is a very country-like country that is not a country. So my question is, is the European Union closer to a country, to a state, or is it closer to an international organization like the United Nations, like the World Health Organization? Ian? What's your side? Sadly, no time for explanations. I'm going to sit on the fence. I'm going 50-50 on this one. Okay. Carl? International organization. Oh. 100%. Carl? United States of Europe, baby. Ooh. <laughs> Got someone on my side, Nick. Very much international organization. Ah, uh, well, Carl, I'm glad I'm glad I've got you on my side. Ah, uh, yeah. No one There's likes no a fence sitter, my friend. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, thank you very much to our panelists today. We're going to be wrapping up our show now, sadly. It is time to spin the globe. And our pin is dropped on Moldova. So make sure to join us next Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on GWRadio.com to hear the latest news, insights, and analysis surrounding Moldova. Pindrop is a news department production of WRGW District Radio. You can listen to all of our episodes as well as bonus interviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Google Podcasts. Our guests today were David Finnamore and Joe Cerrone. Our student panelists were Carl Mackinson, Nicholas Castillo, Keral Vidal, and Ian Kearns. I am Francisco Camacho, co-anchor and scriptwriter at Pindrop, and my co-anchor has been Taylor McKinney. Our researchers have been Wijia Amir, uh, Jacob Schwartz, Audrey Tillman, and Kate McCown handles our engineering. Our producer and a member of the panel today is Ian Kearns. Thank you all very much, and whenever we meet again and you will tune in again, have a good between now and then.